This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our reading today is taken from the book of Hosea, chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Loruhama, Goma had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted, in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Good, good Father. Open our hearts and minds so that we can understand the fullness of of your word. Fill us with the light of the Holy Spirit and bless the servant you have chosen to share the word proclaimed today. In the name of Christ, the word revealed, we pray. Amen. If you're new with us today, I wish you a very warm welcome to TMA, a woman you can imagine. She's not here today, so I can speak freely. I can unburden myself. We started the day off with a fight. We just woke up and went straight into it. After 16 and a half years, we're efficient. We don't waste time anymore. We fight horizontally. And bitter words were exchanged. There are some running sores in our relationship that go back a long way that were reopened again. And I got up to go have a shower, and I closed the door very firmly. And I went and had a shower. And when I came downstairs, Michelle was waiting on the couch. She said, can we just talk through this? So we took an hour. We worked through our issues. We embraced. And then she stood up and said, I'll let you go now so you can finish your sermon prep. What are you preaching on, by the way, today? And... A small smirk escaped my lips, and I said, I'm preaching on Hosea and the terrible woman that God made him marry. And I'd have a lot more relish in this message if she was here over there that I could turn and, and gloat. Because, you know, 
Any marriage, any relationship where we open our hearts to each other and expose ourselves to each other is going to be painful and it's going to be difficult. And I don't want to create the impression that my marriage or any marriage here is an unrelieved hellscape of conflict and difficulty and anguish. It's not. I love being married to Michelle. I'm grateful for my relationship with her. But as C.S. Lewis once wrote, if you don't want to be hurt, never open your heart to anything, not even an animal. And as we go on in being a husband or a wife or a mother or a father, we find that in the midst of the joys, it's also complicated. And we find it's also an experience of pain and difficulty and suffering. And in a way, in both those experiences, we're entering more deeply into the heart of God and learning about him and also learning about ourselves. And we certainly find that in this strange book of Hosea. We've been working our way through the series called Christ in the Old Testament, one message on each of these 39 books, and we're in the final stretch. We're beginning these last 12 minor prophets. And they're called minor not because they're less important than the others, but because they're shorter books. And some of these books contain some of the most memorable quotations and stories in the Old Testament. Others, like Obadiah or Nahum, are pretty obscure, and most of us would be hard-pressed If I asked you what those books were about, we're going to get into those. These are 12 prophets that are speaking, both in the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, between the 8th and the 5th centuries before Christ. They're speaking the word of the Lord in their situation. And Hosea, the first of these prophets among the 12 in Scripture, he is from the northern kingdom. And he's speaking 200 years after these two kingdoms have gone their separate ways. And he's speaking prophetically in a declining kingdom. It's been circling the drain for a long time. And Hosea has this long ministry of 25 years that end just before the Assyrians conquer and destroy the northern kingdom in the year 722. The northern kingdom went off the rails almost from the moment that it split off from the Davidic dynasty in the south. There was religious syncretism. There was a lot of mixing and matching They hadn't completely abandoned the God of Israel, but they were mixing it in with a lot of false gods, Baals and Ashtoreths and all these old pagan gods of the people that they never quite extinguished. They're worshiping God with idols and in ways that God had not commanded. And all throughout, they're cloaking political corruption and oppression of the poor and recurring violence in all these pious phrases. But underneath is a rotten, decaying society that is about to collapse completely. No fun time to be a true follower of the Lord. You're a tiny minority, and everything is going down the tubes. And someone like Hosea might have wished they could have gone off into a cave or emigrated to a more friendly country, but that's not an option that God gives this prophet. He's summoned by God to go and call the people back to repentance. Long past the time when most faithful Israelites would have given up any hope Yet again, God sends a prophet to call the people back to repentance, a call that God's wandering people have often needed to hear and still need to hear today. And it's interesting, actually, if you noted while Sandra was reading the first chapter, that even though Hosea is a northerner, he's preaching to the northern kingdom, the way it's recorded for us in scripture, it's anchored to the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, as though a later editor came along and found Hosea's books and said, you know what, even though this kingdom has collapsed and doesn't exist anymore, it's still very relevant to our situation here in Judah. And we need to take note of this message. Hosea might have had the hardest calling of any of the Old Testament prophets, because God summons him and he says, Hosea, go and marry a promiscuous woman. 
and have children with her. Because like an adulterous wife, this whole land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea is called not just to speak, not just to go to his writing cabin and and draft some documents. He's called to enact and embody God's suffering love for his adulterous people. It's not like a one-time performance art piece like some of these other prophets got to do. Not just for a few months lying on his side or something. That would have been easy. Hosea is called to decades, to a whole lifetime in living in this painful relationship, a cross that he's going to bear to his dying day. And you can see why no one in scripture ever volunteers to be a prophet. Not a true prophet anyways, right? God always has to show up and command them and drag them almost unwilling into this calling. Because speaking for God usually involves a lot of suffering. It's not a pleasant calling. And this woman, Gomer, that Hosea marries, repeatedly betrays him. Again and again, she breaks his heart. Again and again, she shames him in front of the whole community. Because actually, this marriage is open to public view. Subject to the gossip of the neighbors, everyone's whispering and talking about this couple. And that's actually the whole point, the public nature of this. Because God's people who have grown callous to his word, the whole heart is like a thick foot. They're impervious to God's command for repentance. But perhaps they might find their conscience pricked by this strange story that's being lived out right in their own neighborhood. And all this pain that Hosea is living through is him being drawn into a sort of emotional solidarity with God. He's getting to experience a taste of God's own tempestuous relationship with his people. And you know, I think Hosea must have wondered, like, really God, is this the most effective way to use me? Wouldn't I be a much more fruitful prophet and have a more successful ministry and draw more people to you if I had a loving, supportive wife that wasn't constantly cheating on me? That's how we assume God would work most effectively in our lives. But you know what? Maybe sometimes our struggle to obey God under difficult conditions, conditions we think hamper our calling, whether it's chronic illness or an anxiety disorder or a rebellious child or a spouse who no longer wants to follow Jesus, maybe our struggle in that difficult situation actually ends up speaking to more people than what we would define as a successful, flourishing ministry. God had married himself to Israel. He'd bound himself to the 12 tribes through this covenant that he had made with Israel on Mount Sinai. God had rescued Israel from slavery to Pharaoh with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, all these awesome signs and wonders of deliverance and redemption. And he brought her through the wilderness to the foot of this mountain. And on the basis of God's salvation, he claims Israel for himself. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, God says in Hosea chapter 13. You know no God besides me. And beside me, there is no savior. And there in the desert... The 12 tribes were encamped in tents around the base of this flaming mountain, and there God had bound himself to Israel forever. I am your God. You are my people. And the people had responded and said, yes, you are our God. We will be your people forever. And their God in Israel had made a kind of marriage covenant, vowing fidelity to each other forever. And then God had passed before Moses, and he revealed himself. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. Because God's faithful, steadfast, 
persevering love is also a jealous love. God declares himself to be a jealous God. He expects his steadfast love for Israel to be returned by their wholehearted allegiance and loyalty to him. And God's jealousy is not an unhealthy, deranged, paranoid obsession. It's part of a healthy relationship. Anyone who truly loves another person longs for and expects their wholehearted commitment. Because for God, the covenant he made with Israel was never a mere pact. It wasn't just a business contract. This is a bond of love where God fully commits himself to Israel without reservation. And this covenant was meant to be an exclusive relationship. This is not a polyamorous or an open marriage where either spouse is free to go and date other people. Forsaking all others, I will cling to you only. And when on March 9th, 2007, I stood before Michelle in front of God and all these witnesses, and I said yes to her, by saying that, I was also saying no to every other woman in this world to make an exclusive marriage covenant with my wife. And that's what God did with Israel. And his intent was not to control and dominate and suffocate her. He wanted to bless her. He wanted to bring her into a land flowing with milk and honey where they would dwell safely and securely and happily provided they remained loyal to God. And if Israel would be a faithful wife, she would be a fruitful vine. That was the vision. That was the promise. That was the offer that God held out to Israel. But of course, as we read these sorry, wearying pages of the Old Testament, we know the reality is actually quite different. Because even while God is binding himself to Israel on Mount Sinai, at that very moment, the people are melting down their jewelry to make a golden calf bowing down and worshiping this God that they believe has now rescued them from Egypt. They go moaning and complaining through the wilderness. At the very brink of the Jordan River, on the edge of the promised land, they fail to trust that God will bring them in. And even once they're settled in Canaan 40 years later, their hearts grow complacent. And they wander off almost immediately to worship foreign gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And by Hosea's day, The whole society is completely syncretistic. Sure, there's a small part of them that is worshiping God and going to the temple and doing their thing, but they're spreading their bets around. They're taking out insurance. They want to make sure they have all their bases covered. So yes, they're worshiping Yahweh, but they're also bowing down and making sacrifices and offerings to all these different gods. Gods that will keep them safe from their enemies. Gods that will help their crops do well. Gods that will bring good weather. Gods that will help their wife or their their goat conceive. All these different things to cover the bases. And the syncretism goes from the king at the top all the way down to the peasant farmer at the bottom of society. And it's just the way everyone assumes that life works. So Hosea marries Gomer, this promiscuous woman. And she bears him three children. And the names these children are given are assigned by God. The first one is named Jezreel, which doesn't sound so bad, but then they get kind of weird. The second is a daughter, and she's given the name Lo-Ruhama, which means not loved. And then the youngest, a boy, is given the name Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Not easy names for a child to have. When my sisters were in elementary school, Burnaby Christian School, back in the 1980s, there was a kid in their class whose name was Rob. That's what they thought was his name. Actually, Rob was short for repent or burn. That's the very Puritan name his parents gave him. And they came and complained to the teachers because they did not like the fact that the name was being abbreviated. They want him to have this very angry, somewhat threatening name. And these poor children of Hosea had similar names. And they were kind of a sandwich board that they were always wearing 
that were calling everyone's attention to God's judgment against Israel. It wasn't just the father Hosea who was bearing the cross of witnessing for God. But even in giving these names in the very first chapter, God, even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of accusing Israel of unfaithfulness, he can't help himself from declaring that he's never going to give up on Israel. Call your daughter Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Sounds very dark. Sounds very final. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, shall save them. Call your son Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Sounds like the marriage is over and final. And yet, in the very next verse, God goes on to say, Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. I've made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will fulfill it. And even in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. And this first chapter introduces this theme of the book that though God is deeply grieved by Israel's adultery and unfaithfulness, he's angry with Israel, yet God refuses to abandon her. And he's determined that his love will win out in the end. And so God swears he's going to discipline his people. They're going to feel the rod of God's anger. But God also says, I'm going to allure Israel. I'm going to lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And so even by this time in the story, after Gomer bears these three children to Hosea, she abandons her husband. She goes and takes up with other men, which maybe by this time would have been a relief to Hosea. Like, okay, finally this terrible calling is over and I can wash my hands of this woman. Then in chapter 3, God tells Hosea, you need to go find your wife and win her back. Then the Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So Hosea writes, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same towards you. Despite Gomer's promiscuity, despite her betrayal, despite the ways that she's deeply, deeply hurt her husband and broken her marriage vows, Hosea is told, you need to hunt her down. You need to pay her debts. You need to forgive her. And you need to renew your vows towards this woman. Despite by this time having no illusions about her character. And you can imagine the gossip this development would have caused in their little street, but it's a public demonstration that God is never going to cast off his people. God would be well within his rights to divorce Israel. She has broken, horribly broken, the marriage covenant again and again, and well deserves to be cast off. But God has determined, no matter what, I am going to come after my people and restore them. And in the rest of the book, God shows again and again that he is both tough and compassionate. He is just, but he is also merciful. And these pages, yes, they're filled with accusations. They're filled with warnings. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the people of the land. There is no truth or love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. It's interesting that in Hosea in particular, this theme of the people not really knowing God comes up again and again. Just as the betrayed husband might have wondered, was there ever any real intimacy in our relationship? Did my wife ever really know me? Did she ever really perceive me? 
God has the same accusation against Israel. Yes, you might be saying the right things in your liturgy. You might be doing the worship songs and making the offerings, but your hearts are far from me. And God through Isaiah warns that these false gods they've trusted are going to betray them. And their political ally, Assyria, that they've sheltered under for their safety is going to end up turning on them and destroying them. Because you know what? Whatever you trust in besides God inevitably will disappoint you. It's inevitably going to snap under you and pierce you. Hosea's ministry is going to end just a few years before the Assyrians conquer and destroy the northern kingdom. Just a few years before these ten tribes utterly vanish from the pages of history. There's a terrible judgment coming. They sow the wind, they will reap the whirlwind, as Hosea famously writes. And there's a terrible day of calamity that's going to happen soon after Hosea dies, when they will say to the mountains, fall upon us, and to the hills, cover us. Horrible, horrible, dark days are coming. But you know what? In Scripture and in Hosea, God's threats of judgment are never absolute. They are always conditional. And God is not sending his prophets to gloat over his wandering people to announce that they're headed towards an irreversible fate and there's no way they can get off the conveyor belt of damnation. God sends the prophets again and again, long past what we would think is the point of hope, to plead with them, to argue with them, to provoke them, to repent, to cry out for mercy and return to their covenant God because God desires the death of no man. Throughout this book, of course, it's this picture of the betrayed, pursuing husband that predominates. But in chapter 11, the image shifts a little bit. And God changes the metaphor from a betrayed husband to a betrayed father. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burnt incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim how to walk taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. God is the good, good father that we were just singing about, who has done everything to care for his children, to provide for them, to express love towards them. But God's people feel God's parental kindness as a kind of suffocating restriction on their freedom. And they chafe to go on their own way without him breathing down their necks. And they deserve judgment. They deserve discipline. They deserve punishment. But then God goes on to muse within himself. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? And so in the last chapters, God promises that he will heal his people's wandering. I will heal their waywardness. I will love them freely. You know, if God's love only forgave, then he would just be enabling people's sin. Just like Hosea taking Gomer back again and again might have just enabled and confirmed her promiscuity. God's love doesn't just forgive. God's love transforms. God's love changes us from within. And it's God's transforming love That makes it so that sin and death will not have the last word. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death, God declares in chapter 13. Going on to demand, where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? 
And God promises, my grace is going to make Israel like a lush tree that offers fruit to the nations. And that's how the book ends. Except for this concluding coda, this little paragraph, that seems to have been written not by Hosea, but by a later editor summing up the book for generations far removed from Hosea's. Here's what he writes. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. You know, of course, the story of Hosea and Gomer is not just a story about some people from the early Iron Age living in the Middle East. Gomer is a story of all of us, because we are the promiscuous, unfaithful, adulterous, wandering ones. And when we sit and reflect and open up our hearts before God, which we so rarely do, we realize that such a small fraction of our hearts are given over to God. Such a small piece of our life is even spent in any attempt at conscious attention on him. And even at our best moments, when our hands are lifted high in praise or we're on our face before God, even at our best moments, we're not even fully present before God. And our hearts are prone to wander. We all have wandering eyes looking for love in all the wrong places. Of course, given a certain percentage of our time towards God to cover, you know, the religious, spiritual part of our lives, but spreading our bets around, seeking security, provision in every place but God. And I wonder who this afternoon would dare to boldly march up to the communion table and say, I have loved the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my strength. We've all fallen short and not fallen short just a few centimeters from the very top. We have fallen way, way, way short. We're nowhere close. And we have to bow our heads and confess before God, we have not done the things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us if we honestly look at ourselves. Thank God Hosea is a lot more than a book of warning and accusation. Thank God it is. It's a story of the love of God, and like all these prophets, it points forward to Jesus. Peter says in his first letter that concerning this salvation, the prophets, including Hosea, who spoke of the grace that was to come, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. But you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and even angels long to look into these things. You know, Hosea is part of this whole overarching story of the Bible. It is a story about the Son of God seeking out his promiscuous, wandering, lost bride. He seeks her. He finds her. He pays her debts. He forgives her sins. He changes her heart. And he binds her to himself forever. Paul in Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You know, as I was reading that again in the taxi on the way here, I realized it wasn't just Hosea who was called to enact and embody the suffering love of God for his people. All of us, husbands and wives, all of us who are married, in our marriages, in the difficulty, the painful, awkward conflict of two people trying to live together in love, learning how to forgive, how to forbear, how to seek after one another, 
We're all called to bear a similar cross that Hosea was called to bear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, make her holy and pure, by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The transformation that only the Spirit of Christ can bring. You know, as we reflect on Hosea, we realize that the only ground of our security is not our wavering allegiance to Jesus. The only ground of our security, our stability, our hope, our confidence is his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. We stand here today, we sit here today as people for whom Christ has given everything. He has gone to extreme lengths to seek us out and to win us wandering people back, even to the shameful death on the cross. We are sinful people, far more sinful than we realize. And it is only God's kindness that hides most of our true self from us. We are sinful. We are also wondrously beloved people. And no matter how far we wander, we all have our seasons of closeness to God. We all have our seasons where we go our own way. Jesus promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And no matter how far you go, I will go further to win you back and restore you and bring you to myself. And I will forgive you. I will wash you. I will renew you. I will transform you by my spirit. And the final image of the Bible, of course, is the wedding feast of the Lamb. When the wandering, promiscuous, filthy bride of Christ is clothed in radiant garments of white, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb, healed and whole at last, looking into the eyes, not of rebuke, not of condemnation, not of disgust, but into the eyes of perfect love. Shall we bow our heads before the grace of our God? Heavenly Father, we confess before you that we are sinful people, and our hearts have wandered. Even while sitting here, our hearts have wandered. And, O Lord, we cry out for your forgiveness, for your acceptance, for your healing. And we fix our eyes today, O Lord, as we prepare to celebrate communion together. We fix our eyes on your sacrifice of love for us. Lord, we want to know your love. We want to be your perfect, beautiful bride, radiant and spotless. And we need the healing operation of your spirit in us to draw us close to yourself. Our only hope, O Lord, is Jesus Christ, our Savior, given completely, fully for us. And your own commitment, O God, to be a God of steadfast love, a love that never gives up, that goes to the most extreme lengths to win us back. We pray, O Lord, that your love would not be in vain in our hearts and in our lives. We come to you in repentance. We come to you in faith. We come to you in hope. Cleanse us and draw us closer and closer to yourself, O Lord, and give us hearts that never wander from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.